Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you will speak to us today. I pray that we will have ears to hear. I pray that you will comfort us where we need comfort, encourage us where we need courage, and challenge us where we need, chal- where we need challenging. May these things in your son's name. Amen. About a year ago, a little over a year ago, two llamas broke free from a petting zoo in Phoenix, Arizona. It was a wild chase. And they caught part of this chase on helicopter. Some of you are smiling because you've seen the video on Facebook, which is how I saw it. They caught part of this chase from the llamas, of the llamas, on a helicopter um, from the news camera. And you were just watching, they have it on fast forward because the chase goes on forever. You, it's not just like a couple of blocks. This is, these llamas are breaking free all over traffic. They are going crazy. And every so often you see this group of these big guys starting to corner these llamas. And then the llamas break free again. And it is just going on and on. Now, for people like me, who the past few years have been reading books like Llama, Llama, Red Pajama, And is your mama a llama? Llamas are adorable. They're so cute and woolly, and you just want to cuddle up, and they're soft wool, and then knit with it. They're just so cute. Now, my cousin tells a different story. He says, when a llama is running toward you, charging you, you run. They are not cute. They are frightening things. And so you can see that in these big burly guys who are trying to corner these llamas, but, but keeping their distance too, because they don't want to get too close. It's a bit scary. And then the llamas break free again. Well, finally, I mean, this is going on and on all over Phoenix. Some guy finally gets a lasso, and he lassos one of the llamas. I never did see what happened to the other llama. I assume it was lassoed as well. So he finally lassos this one llama, and you see them cheering, high five, they finally did it. This was no easy task. This was a hard thing. And I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, this reminds me a little bit of politics today. I kind of feel like I'm chasing a llama, a big, scary llama that I'm a little bit afraid to corner, but at the same time, I have to catch. And that's how I feel with politics and just what is going on today in the way of how do I catch this thing? How do I know what cause to take up? How do I know what to think about in this world? How do I know how to act? What am I supposed to do? It just feels like this huge task, and if I get too close to it, it's going to run me down. And I was thinking about this as I was reading our passage for today in Luke chapter 13. And it occurred to me that this passage tells me whom Jesus notices. It tells me what cause he took up. It tells me what our kingdom values are and how that mobilized Jesus. So I want you to look with me today in chapter Luke, Luke chapter 13, that is, starting in verse 10. 
Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. I'm going to stop right there because Luke is painting a very specific setting here. Settings can tell us a lot about the people who are there, but they can also give us a certain mood. And so I want to kind of unpack this a little bit. He's teaching in one of the synagogues. Now, a synagogue is a place where Jewish people in the village would come and gather, typically on a Sabbath, and they would discuss Scripture. It's a little bit different than our worship services in that you you had a ruler of a synagogue, but he didn't stand up and give a homily or a sermon. Really, the men would take turns reading scripture and discussing it and teaching on it. It was more like a small group discussion with a leader who would kind of keep everybody on track, make sure they were going down the general right path. So this is the setting that we have, and so this is why Jesus is free to teach on the Sabbath, in the synagogue, sorry. Now, he has done this before. We've seen him do this before in Luke. The first time we saw him do it, the crowds got up and tried to stone him to death. In a chapter ago, he tells his followers, the synagogues are going to become a place of persecution for you. So synagogues for this time in Jesus' life is not a place of safety. You know something's going down. Now, to emphasize that, Luke says he's teaching in one of the Sabbath synagogues. I keep getting this backwards. He's teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Well, you can kind of assume that because that's typically the day that that was happening. They were working the rest of the time. But Luke points this out on the Sabbath. He wants to emphasize that this is what is happening. It's on the Sabbath. So here we have Jesus teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. When he was teaching in the synagogues, we see in his past messages that he's talking about the good news to the poor. He's talking about the release of the captives. He's talking about the freedom of the kingdom of God. And we have seen mixed reactions to this message. So we can assume that that is what he is talking about. And we can assume that we need to, we're going to see what kind of reaction he is going to have. We've also seen a lot of conflict happening on the Sabbath. Remember Jason's message last week when he was um, picking some wheat to eat and the Pharisees got all up in arms. And in fact, that was the issue that caused them to start to gather to figure out how are we going to take down this guy? Conflict. This is kind of like Clint Eastwood walking into the saloon and all eyes are on him. What's he going to do? And that's where we are. And there was a woman who had, a dis- who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. One of the things that the English translation kind of misses is the way that Luke draws you into this story. Because he set up the setting. Here we are in the synagogue. Jesus is teaching about, the po- about good news to the poor, about freedom from the captives. And look. While he's teaching, look, there, there's a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself out. Can you imagine the physical pain she must have been in? How everything in her life 
was an effort. How her muscles and bones had reshaped themselves because of this disability. How going to draw water from the well was not this easy task. How baking bread, kneading the bread, everything she had to do was painful. And besides that, Luke tells us it's a disabling spirit. A couple verses later in verse 16, Jesus is going to clarify that Satan had bound her for 18 years. This is not just a physical issue, as painful as that in itself is. This particular physical issue was directly caused by a spiritual battle. It was directly caused by Satan imprisoning her in some POW camp. For 18 years, she has been physically struggling. For 18 years, she has been spiritually struggling and been captive. And in addition to that, we can imagine how this would have cut her off in some ways from her community. How alone she must have felt when all of the other women were running to the well and running after their kids and chatting with each other, and she's slowly making her way. And they're skirting around her with their kids, gossiping about what's going on, and she can't be really involved with that. She can't really participate with them in the same way that they share life together. And we don't know, did she get this when she was five and this has been her reality for all of her known life? Or was she already a grown woman? Did she already have kids, a husband that she was supposed to be taking care of and it completely changed her reality, how she was a wife and how she was a parent? We don't know these things. We just know that for 18 years she struggled with this. Maybe people stepped in to help her when she's at the water, they drew some well. When she's at the well, they drew some water. Is today backwards day? Did I miss the memo or something? I'm thinking so fast, it's just going ahead. Maybe somebody stopped to help her here and there. But even at that, they go back to their normal lives. Her normal is not their normal. Her reality is not their reality. This is what extreme physical pain, extreme and chronic physical disease, this is what it does to us. It cuts us off from each other. It isolates us in some way. It makes us feel alone. This woman has been struggling physically. This woman has been struggling spiritually. And I think we can say this woman has been struggling socially for 18 years, for most of her life. And Jesus looks in. Chapter, or verse 12. When Jesus saw her. He looked in this room full of people, 
full of healthy people, full of people who are interacting, discussing the scripture. And he looks around and he sees the woman whom everybody else had probably forgotten about. After 18 years, she probably just became this wallpaper figure. And he looks in and he sees her. And he notices her pain. And he sees everything, the physical pain, the spiritual pain, the isolation. He sees her and he calls her over. She hasn't done anything to get his attention. She hasn't jumped up and said, please, please heal me. She's just sitting there, a faithful Jew, at the synagogue on a Sabbath worshiping. And he calls her over. The first thing that we can say about kingdom priorities is that it notices the unnoticed. That Jesus saw the one who's in pain, the one who's hurting, the one who's forgotten. And this is who we can be as kingdom citizens. This is what we can offer others. We can notice those who feel like my pain is forgotten, my struggles are forgotten, and I'm isolated. We can notice them, and we can call them to us. We can comfort them. In that moment, when he saw her and called her over, he gave her dignity. There's a... um, A teacher, Mr. White, in Charlotte, North Carolina, teaches at a a Title I school. He teaches three classes of fifth grade literacy. And every student who walks into his classroom gets a special handshake. Now, again, this is another video that has gone viral, so I bet some of you guys have seen this. This is not just like a, hey, how are you doing? I'm giving you a handshake. Every student got to choreograph their own handshake of what they wanted to do, and it is like this mini dance that he does, a different one with each student, three classes. So I'm imagining somewhere between 75, 90 kids, teachers, does that sound about right? 75 to 90 different dances that he does with these kids every time they walk into his classroom. And you see them lined outside the door, and they're walking in, and he's doing this with them. And I mean, I, I don't even know how he keeps straight. But he does with every single one. And when they asked, why do you do it? He said, because I want every student to have a little bit of joy. Every student. He doesn't know what their home situations are like. He doesn't know what's happening with them. Every student. It doesn't matter if they're the A students or the failing students. It doesn't matter if they're the quiet ones or they're the disruptive ones. It doesn't matter if they are the ones who are sitting in the front row or if they're the class clown in the back. Every single student gets a moment of his special attention every day when they walk into his classroom. And that's what we can do for people. The homeless lady on the corner of the street, we can stop, and besides just giving her some coins, we can look at her and make eye contact. How are you today? How are you doing? 
even that moment, to give that woman dignity. We can walk across the street. We can, we can just take a moment to look and see the people who are around us in our, in our very congregation, in our activities that we're shuffling our kids to. You know what I've noticed? There's a lost art of people watching. Everybody sits and they get somewhere and they pull out their phones and they're catching up on Facebook or they're reading a book on their phones or they're Twittering or whatever it is. People no longer just sit and notice others. Jason mentioned a week, two, three, at some point in one of his sermons recently about margins in our lives, about having the space in our lives to be interrupted, to hear from God. I would say this also, having margins in our lives to notice others, to see their faces, to watch what's going on with them, to people watch a little bit and just notice others and taking the time to make them feel special. That's what Jesus does. But that's not all that he does. In verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Immediately, 18 years of bone and muscle and sinew, like a parenthesis, straightens up, no physical therapy. Immediately, she is fully, completely healed. That's the power Jesus has. But I want us to notice something because he doesn't say, woman, you are healed. He says, woman, you are freed. Because remember, in this case, this physical infirmity, infirmity, I feel like I'm missing a syllable. This physical illness, this physical handicap is a direct result of a spiritual battle. She has been held captive and he frees her like that. Satan has no fight here. Jesus wins this battle immediately. It's effective, it's immediate, and it is complete. And this woman in every realm is free. Physically, she is healed. Spiritually, she has been freed. And I think we can assume that socially she has been restored because now she can participate in that normal life, that community life that's the norm for everybody else. She can be a part of that again. She can run around with kids and play with them. She can easily just get water and bake bread and do all those things and have the time to spend with others, to sit with them, to walk with them, to communicate with them. She gets to be a part of that. Her healing reaches every aspect of life. And so she glorifies God. Of course she is. She, this woman has experienced a transformation, this immediate transformation like few of us will see. And she glorifies God. And I would love to say that's the end of the sermon and we're done 
and sit back down. Kind of like you want to end Romeo and Juliet on the balcony scene when everything is beautiful and rosy. Unfortunately, that's not where Luke stops. Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. This guy is seething because Jesus has once again picked the Sabbath. Now, I want to step back and look at it from his perspective for a minute. So we're going to do a little history review here, some things that we've kind of talked about over our kingdom talk. So keep in mind, Israel had rebelled, and because of that rebellion, God left the temple and sent them into exile. They returned from exile, but God did not. Now, when they returned, they were repentant. They did extreme things to get their lives back in order, to get the temple back in order, but God did not come back then. Instead, what he said is, I will come again, and in the meantime, follow the law. And so here they've been for 450 years following the law and waiting. And at the heart of this law is Sabbath. Because during Roman occupation, this is what set them apart. This is what said, we are the faithful nation of God. They didn't have weekends the same way that we have weekends. People worked every single day. And so for the Jews to take a day and say, we are not going to work today, was a financial loss to them. It was a social exclusion. It was something that set them apart. For them to lose that would be, would be to say, we're just taking on the ways of the pagan worshipers, which is what Israel had done way back here that caused them to go to exile in the first place. No way we are going to do that again. So it is important that they keep the Sabbath. Now here we have the ruler of the synagogue. His job is to kind of keep everybody on task during these discussions. He wants to shepherd these people. He wants to take care of these people. He wants to make sure that when God returns, they are ready. And so he stands up and he doesn't talk to Jesus directly. He addresses his people, his flock, the ones he wants to make sure that are following God. And he doesn't say, just forget about this healing. Just don't, don't, don't even pay attention to it. He doesn't say that. It's kind of funny when you think about it. Come again tomorrow for your healings. But he doesn't discount the healing itself. And he doesn't try to stop them from getting healed. All he's saying is, let's do this in the proper way. There's an order to this. There's a right way. We need to do this in the right way. That's his argument. And Jesus says, then the Lord answered him, verse 15, you hypocrites. You have completely missed the point. 
He says, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? So he's saying, you make an exception. Okay, you're not allowed to work on Sabbath. But what you do is you go over, and if your donkey is tied to the post, you untie them so that they can go get a drink of water, so that they can go out to the pasture and eat. You don't make them wait till the next day to get some food and water. You make an exception on the Sabbath. Verse 16, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a human being, one of our own, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? The donkeys are tied up and you let them go. But when a woman has been tied up for 18 years, you think she should wait another day? On the face of it, it just seems like he's doing some legal exegesis. Come on, let's talk about this. This is an exception. Let's make another exception. But that's not really what he's doing. Because he makes a point to say, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. What he's really doing is redirecting them toward the heart of Sabbath. On Thursday, I was driving the kids home. We had been to Keegan's Martial Arts. We picked up some milk. We're sitting at a light. The light turns green. I push the gas. It starts, and then there's this weird disconnect, and the car stops driving. I'm able to coast through the intersection, and I get right to the other side of the intersection. And let me just say it's 5.30. There are a lot of cars around. Thankfully, I got through the intersection. But here I am right at the intersection in the left-hand side. So of course, any cars who are now going to be making a left are going to rear-end me. I can't get the car started again. And I learned a very important lesson in that moment. A car needs gas. (laughs) And you have to refill this gas. My husband is really laughing, not only because he actually responded really well. When I called him, I'm like, you're not going to believe what I did. And he said, it's okay, I'll come take care of you. But he's laughing because he's always on to me about this. You have a quarter of a tank. You need to refill. And I'm always like, it's fine. It's fine. And I always take care of it. And when I left the house to take Keegan to martial arts that day, I thought, you know what? I, we've got enough to get to martial arts, and then I will get gas immediately. Well, by the time martial arts had finished, I had kind of forgotten that and remembered instead that we needed milk. They had been practicing the Sabbath, and there were a lot of things to remember, but they had forgotten the gas. They had forgotten the whole thing that makes it go. Sabbath was a day they practiced every seven days. It was a year they practiced every seven years when they let the land go fallow so that the land could rest. 
It was also another year called the Jubilee year that they were supposed to practice every 50th year, although there is no indication that Israel ever actually practiced this. When every 50th year, any indentured servants or slaves were to be set free. Any land that had been bought and sold could be redeemed by its original owner. When things were set right, Sabbath was about setting things right. It was pointing toward and it was celebrating God's kingdom work of freeing the oppressed, of healing the sick, of restoring humans. That's what Sabbath was about. And they had forgotten that. They had forgotten that, that his kingdom work was at the center of it, not just some practice that they had to do. Jesus didn't say, stop practicing the Sabbath. He said, this of all things, this freeing this woman is at the heart of what God's kingdom is about. This freeing is at the heart of what Sabbath is about. Jesus' values, which are our kingdom values, noticing the unnoticed, the hurt, the oppressed, and whenever possible, bringing freedom. This is what we can do. This doesn't mean we can always change political situations We can always change the climate. But there are ways that we can work in others' lives and bring them dignity and freedom. For some of us, that will mean going overseas. For some of us, that will mean going to Restored Hope, going to Preston Trace. For some of us, that will mean noticing the person in the hospital room next to us, next to the person you're visiting, who doesn't have visitors, noticing the woman who lives a couple streets down who always seems to be alone, noticing the mom at the PTA who always seems to be kind of in the back corner by herself. Maddie Phoenix led, she's a minister at a college, college minister at Waco, She led a group of college students one summer to Jordan, to a refugee camp of Syrians. And while they were there, they're just there for a summer. They can't change everything there. They certainly can't change any politics in Syria. But they're working in the refugee camp, and they're able to get this old warehouse, and they acquire this old warehouse, and they're going to kind of rebuild it, restructure it for the refugees who are living there. Now, in these refugee camps, people are living there for years and years and years. I mean, people are getting married and starting new families. It is a long-term thing, and they're living in these small 10-by-10 tents. Everything is communal. Cooking is communal, washing is communal, bathing is communal, everything. So for women who have a lot of restrictions put on them in the Muslim community, they're very limited in their interactions. They're very limited in who they can be. So what Maddie Phoenix and her friends did was they created in this warehouse a women's room. 
And it was just a room for women to come and have an outing, have a night out, and literally for the first time in years, let their hair down and just take off the scarves and giggle with each other and laugh and do their nails and feel beautiful and feel like they are seen by others. One of the women there said, I feel human for the first time in a long time. They couldn't change life in the refugee camp, but they could give women this one thing of freedom. Where in your lives can you give one area of freedom to somebody else? Dear God, I thank you that you are a God of love and healing and restoration. I thank you for the comfort that that brings us of knowing that whatever we are going through now, you will set right. I pray as kingdom citizens, we will extend that love to others, that restoration and that freedom wherever we can, wherever possible. Amen.